Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning. Um, my name is Bree, and today I'll be reading First Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and in and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instructions does not reject a human, but be <laughs> therefore anyone who rejects this instructions does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It's like that. I'm the one ringing, it's not you, so. Well, hello. How's that? Good morning. How are we? Good to be with you. My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, VJ, our, our lead pastor, is off teaching up in Bolton uh, this morning. So uh, good to be with you. If you're in junior high, you are dismissed, and you can head off to your programs. And uh, just while that's happening, a uh, special welcome to you if you're with us for the first time or haven't been around in a while. Just wanted to let you know that we are working our way through a series called Wise Up, which is essentially taking a good look at scripture to see how we can make wise decisions so that way we can make better decisions to live a life that gives us uh, a real sense of peace and leaves us with fewer regrets. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of things in my life that when I look back, they could definitely be, or they were regrets for a while until God worked and, and rescued me out of those things. So we want to be making good decisions going forward so we're not left with all of those problems. And some of those problems, to be honest with you, in my life all kind of started back in grade nine for me. So in grade nine, I developed uh, extremely severe acne, so acne so bad that I actually had to uh, go on medication. It was called Accutane. And this, this medication is good in that it helped minimize the uh, acne on my face, but it was terrible in the sense that the side effects of this medication were uh, extreme sensitivity to the sun and depression. So now it's not like I was, like I was already not you know, depressed enough, right? Um, or I didn't want to go out because I didn't want anybody to see me, but now I had this pill that I took that made me get a sunburn like so quick, and basically I was left to just stew in my misery in my room because I didn't want to go outside. It was, it was actually one of the lowest points in my life. Now, mix into this kind of misery cocktail, a good dose of thrash metal. Around this time in my life, I had been heavily uh, getting really into playing uh, the, the drums, and I was really getting into music, and heavy metal happened to be the thing that did it for me. And so I would literally go into 
into my room, lock the door, turn the lights out, put my headphones on blast, and just bang away, thrash away to this music four, five, six, seven hours a day sometime. Not even making that up. You can ask my parents, and if they can hear you, they'll tell you it's true. <laughs> And so uh, eventually, um, you know, the only real reason I would leave my house was because I had to go to school. My parents forced me to go there. Um, but eventually at school, I made some friends who were in loving heavy metal as well. So we started a band and you know what? We actually did okay for ourselves. I'm not going to tell you how to find us online, but we're actually there still, believe it or not. Remnants in the MySpace world, for those of you who know what that is. And um, as we were producing this music, is thrash metal music with a message of aggression, a message of anger, uh, anarchy, hatred. The reason we were actually able to produce music with this kind of content or this kind of message, because in reality, that's who we were on the inside. Every single one of us, we were just terrible, awful people. As a matter of fact, I think the only reason my parents and my brother and sister put up with us, or put up with me rather, playing drums that loud for that long was because while I was doing that, at least they weren't talking to me or I wasn't talking to them. I had nothing but back talk from my parents. All I would do is trash my siblings, put them down, just make them seem as if they were worthless. And so while I was locked in my room, at least it was just me by myself in my misery and they, they weren't with me there. That was seriously my reality for a lot of years. Now, we can fast forward to when I'm around 18 and I'm at a concert and um, God surprised me and he, I had an encounter with him in a surprising way. Surprising for a couple of different reasons about where I was at in my life, but mostly surprising because I never expected him to show up at a Morbid Angel concert. And so I have this experience and I enter into this rapid, transformative process in my life where God is doing an incredible work, bringing people into my life who are showing me the ways of Jesus. And, and in that process, I'm leaving behind the band I quit the band. I'm leaving behind, uh, exposing myself to that subculture, leaving those things behind. Four or five years go by, and I haven't even thought about heavy metal, really. And then we're in this apartment where Sandra and I first live, and I'm going through this box, and I find what? My collection of heavy metal CDs. And I'm like, ah! Oh! I haven't seen these since like forever, it seemed. And so I take them out and I start to listen to them once in a while while I'm driving around, while I'm cutting the grass or in the background. And you know what happened? that terrible teenager reared his ugly head again and my fuse shortened and I would get angry and I would freak out and for like almost no reason, but there was this aggression that bubbled up inside of me until God, again, through the help of other people, helped me realize that this was more than just entertainment, that this music in a way actually had a sense of control or a stronghold over me. And so I'm a bit of a dramatic fellow. I don't know if you've picked up on that. And so what I did is I took all of my CDs, like hundreds of CDs, thousands of dollars in this collection over all these years and I brought them out where I was living in Scarborough at the time, had these big, huge recycling bins. I don't know if you have those in the city of Toronto. And I remember pouring them in and the CDs, as they hit the bottom of the bin, they're like shattering and smashing. And as that's happening in that moment, I, I kid you not, I'm experiencing almost a liberation. It's if God was like removing this thing that was like a heavy coat. Like, you know, when you go to the dentist and they put that heavy thing on you. It was like he was taking that off and I was finally able to breathe again because of how much power this had over me. Over the course of some time, I was able to kind of pray through this and think through this and realize that that stuff was killing me. That stuff was attacking my soul. That stuff was causing, was forcing me, fighting with me. And I was almost reverting back to this person who I was before I knew Jesus. And, and I knew that if I didn't kill that stuff, that it was going to kill me. And the reality for all of us is that we are all exposed to something that is trying to kill our souls. 
And, and what we're going to be talking about this morning is the attack that media and the messages of media in particular have on our souls. And so we've been talking about making wise decisions, wise up. It's all about how do we live a wise life. And we wouldn't be doing a thorough job. We would be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that, uh, that the media, that all different forms of media didn't have an effect on the way that we live our life. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. I mean, if we think about this, we are experiencing sensory overload on a daily basis, aren't we? Right? Dozens and dozens and dozens of songs are played, either by choice or just in the background. We watch hours of TV, more than any generation ever has before. We open tab after tab after tab on the internet. We, we watch or listen to the news and we try to figure out what's real and what's fake. And then we go to Facebook and we try to figure out what is real and what is fake. Right? This becomes our reality. We go to the doctor's office and as we're sitting there, we pick up a lifestyle magazine and we're flipping through it and it says we should look like this and sound like this and talk like this and eat in these places and go visit these and, and, and go on trips to these places. We should drive this car and we should have this much money. We read all the books that New York Times says, these are the best sellers. Well, and then people are like, oh, I want to read that and it just kind of climbs and that's how that whole system works. And this is what we're regularly exposed to. That is if we actually stop to think about what we're consuming. Because very often, at least in my life, I don't even really need to think about the media that I consume. Why? Because Spotify keeps track of all the music I listen to and automatically puts together a playlist and it says, here's more music that you're gonna like. And you know what? Netflix gives me a percentage of how, much, how likely I am to want to watch this new show or this new series or whatever. Google now automatically curates a list of news headlines based on other stuff I've looked at. I don't even need to think. Because there's people in the computer world, these algorithms, I don't even know what words to use, are trying to get us. There are marketers who are brilliant. And all they're doing is putting all this stuff in front of us to the point where we don't even need to choose. And if that's not enough, there's this thing that happens inside of us, which is almost a chemical reaction that we have when we finally get exposed to some type of media that we like. We get a hit of dopamine when we get a like on a post or we get a hit of, a hit of something. And, and, and subconsciously, we actually go back and search out that media more and more and more because we have this inner computer that's actually saying, that feels good, feeling comes when you look at this stuff and then without even realizing it we've like succumbed to it and it's so powerful in our lives why the media is so powerful in our lives because what it does is it plays with our desires it puts stuff in front of us and makes it look desirable no matter how broken or messed up it might be. And so it excites us. It, gives, it invites us almost into this opportunity to escape for a little while and say, well, my life isn't like that here, but it is when I go off and play that video game or it is when I go off and watch that movie or it is when I go and I'm at that concert, right? It gives us that opportunity and excites something within us because we get an opportunity to see, ooh, if my life was just different, ooh, if my life was just better, it could be like this. And all of a sudden we find ourselves longing and craving and, and lusting even after the things that the world is putting forward, saying that we are not a complete and total person unless we have all that it has to offer. And because it's so powerful, because it's an emotional, emotive thing, because it plays with our physiology, that's what makes it so powerful. This is why the word addiction gets used all the time now when it comes to things like this. You hear about pornography addictions or addictions to video games, and there are TV shows that we watch about people who are recovering from their addiction to some type of media. And if that's not the case, then we go on YouTube and we subscribe, because we're addicted, to watching other people play video games. Whether or not we think they're better or worse than us, they're making money because we're actually watching them play video games because it's become so much a part of us. We need it. We feel like we're not a total, complete, whole person unless we have that. All of this 
kind of says, if we're paying attention, we have an unhealthy relationship with the media. And, and it's not just about what we consume, it's about how much we consume. And all the time there is this ongoing consumption, whether it's by choice or whether we're being force fed. And so what we're doing today is we're looking at scripture and we're seeing is there anything there that's relevant for helping us make decisions about the media we consume so that way we can live a life that is wise. As we've been going through this series, we've talked about living a wise life is living a life that honors God first and foremost, that puts him in the ultimate position, makes him the ultimate desire of our hearts. And so to make wise decisions, we have to be mindful about the media that we're consuming. And so if you'd like, you can join me. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to be spending some time in the first couple of verses there. And Thessalonians was written by a guy named Paul. And uh, Paul wrote a number of letters in the New Testament. You might have heard of them called as epistles before, but they're letters. Basically what happened, the apostle Paul would preach and he would plant churches and he would travel around and then he'd get arrested and put in prison or he'd be like hiding out, trying not to get killed for preaching the gospel. And he would write letters back to these churches that he had written. So if you think about the New Testament like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are gospels. They're the eyewitness biographical accounts of who Jesus is and how he lived his life. And the epistles, the letters that are written, kind of explain the beginnings of this movement of Christ followers, this movement of Jesus followers. This is what it looked like. And so Paul writes two letters to the Thessalonians. That's the church in a place called Thessalonica, okay? That's, so if he was writing a letter to us, it would be to the church at Upperonicus or something like that. And so he writes these letters to them, and as he does, he teaches them, and he warns them, and he encourages them, and he tells them that he's praying for them, and he gives them ministry plans. He gives them these updates. And this letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written about 20 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, which tells us that this movement was very, very young at the time. Christianity as a whole was very, very young at the time. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Or, or another translation, English Standard Version puts it this way, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, if you are able to, I would highlight this or circle it or dog ear the page or, or screenshot that if you're looking at it, whatever it is, because how many times have you asked yourself the question, what is God's will for my life? Right? This, this existential interacting with every, every level of our life, this question, what is God's will for my life? Actually, next week, uh, Vijay is going to be talking about um, how do we make wise choices in connection to God's call on our life. So he's not going to tell us exactly what God's will is for our life, but come back next week and Vijay can tell you all that stuff. But here he is. This is God's will for your life. So for some of us, all of us maybe, we should just be going, oh, whew, glad I don't have to worry about that anymore. Because now I don't have to ask the question. Now I don't need to wonder. He's told me what his will is, and it is my sanctification. Except for those of us in the room who are like, what on earth is sanctification? That is not nearly as clear as I would have liked God to be in telling us what his will is for us. What does it mean to be sanctified? So when we talk about sanctification, we may have heard this word in the past and thought, well, this is just some big theological phrase that they talk about at seminary and rap. No, that's actually not true. It's right there in scripture. There are other theological 
words that are complicated and complexify all the stuff we're trying to get out of the scripture. But this one's right there. When we think about sanctification, we, we, we're talking about holiness. What does it mean to be holy? So we can almost use these words interchangeably. And the cool thing about sanctification and holiness is that it gives us a way of thinking about who we as Christ followers are, who we as Jesus people are. This is who we are. And there's two ways of thinking about it. Sanctification and holiness both refer to who we are and who we're becoming who we are and who we're becoming. And really, it's the journey towards wholeness. And so we need to think about it on these two levels. So let's break it down. The first level, holy or sanctified, is who you are as a follower of Jesus, which means that the moment you said, Jesus, I need you, you came to the end of yourself, you realized you had no more, no more wisdom, you had no more, like you, not enough experience, you couldn't get by on your own resources or reserves, you couldn't do it anymore, you came to Jesus, and you said, Jesus, I believe you're a Lord, Will you, will you forgive me, Jesus? Please save me. That very moment, that moment, that instant when you believed, you receive new life. You receive new identity. You are now called a child of God. You are brought into the family of God. And in that moment, you were sanctified. What that means is in that moment, you were set apart. You were made holy. And there's a distinction. When we think of God as being holy, for example, we're not just talking about his character and that he's perfect and unable to sin and those kinds of things, though all that is true. This other thing we talk about is God is holy in that he is removed. He is consecrated, set apart by himself. There's nothing that kind of gets in there and messes with him. Now, the beauty of the gospel and who Jesus is is that, that he comes out of that for our sake. But the moment we believe we are removed and we are separated from those who do not know Jesus yet, there's a separation that takes place. It's a positional thing. It's our status. It's our identity. We are holy. But then there's the second understanding, and that is what we more commonly think of or what we tend to think of first, and that is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. And that's the second part, the daily journey, the daily process of being cleansed, of being made holy. So the Holy Spirit, he works within us, regularly convicting us of sin, the ways that we're broken, the, things that we're, the ways that we're going against God. And he says, hey, you got to deal with that. And we start to work through that. And then we become a better man or a better woman as time goes by. And what we, the reason we become a better anything is because we're being made more and more into the image of the likeness of who Jesus is. We're being made like Jesus. Now, when we think of holiness, if you grew up in a church, you might think of people who are like, well, man, they practice holiness and they're like a little, they're freaks, right? Or we might think of like, man, we look at the scripture for an example of holiness and you got like John the Baptist who lives out in the middle of nowhere and he's wearing camel's hair and eating bugs so he can be removed from the, you're like, that's holy? I don't really think I want that. That's like nasty. I don't want that. But really, it's not that. It's not that first. It's, it's not, it's, we actually can't pursue the process of being made whole or complete people unless God has already saved us and made us into a whole person that we can begin that journey. Remember, it's kind of weird because you're like, it's a now and not yet. It's like you got your feet in two separate camps, right? It's a now and a not yet. We are set apart. God loves us. We are his child and he gives us everything we need to pursue the life of living in such a way that would honor him and all that we do. A now and a not yet. It's a happened and an in the process of happening kind of thing. And there's two other places in scripture that give us a good example of this. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Right? 
He, he's already made you, we've been made perfect forever. And so when God looks at us as, as followers of Jesus, ones who've been made new because of our faith in him, when he looks at us, he sees us as holy, as perfect, as set apart. But does he see us as finished? Not yet. He's in the process of, of making us finished as it goes forward, now and not yet. I almost feel like I have to keep going over it and over and over again because, I mean, I believe it, but I get this now and not yet thing. It's a little, there's got to be faith there. And then there's this other thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, all of us, Paul at this point is talking to a group of Christians at the church in Corinth. He wrote a letter to them too. And he says, all of us with unveiled face, meaning there's nothing blocking us, there's no paper bag on our head. There's nothing in our way. We can see clearly the image of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. We can see Jesus. At this point, remember, the Thessalonians, or the Corinthians rather, it was very recent where they would have like aunts or uncles or people who were around at the time of Jesus being around. So it's not like we're trying to say, well, I don't, there's no pictures in this book. There's just some maps. It's not like that. These people actually would be able to tell the story of this man, Jesus, who walked around and did the things that he did. And it says, we look at this image and it's not blocked from us and we ought to look at it and desire it and want to know more about it. Why? Because we are being made like that image. That's who, Jesus, that's who God is making us like. He is making us like Jesus. And so when we think about holiness, or when we think about uh, sanctification, it's not just a big theory or a big concept in the sky, this unattainable thing, but rather it's a person. His name is Jesus. And so when we look at who he is and what he does, we actually see the picture of who we are being made like. Jesus is the only whole the only complete person, the only whole person, W-H-O-L-E person, total person, perfect, and we are being made like him every single day as we pursue holiness by God's grace. And so Paul sets it all up here, and then he breaks it down, and he says, here's what a holy life looks like. Here's what living a sanctified life looks like. He says it means you'll avoid sexual immorality, you will not lust for people, power, and things, and you will not take advantage of another person. Now, like I've already alluded to, this is, was written about 20 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So Christianity is very young, and about 2,000 years ago from now, the Apostle Paul is writing about things, and man, could this ever be more relevant for the culture that we live in today? Sexual immorality, lusting for more stuff, wanting more stuff, jealousy, envy, and taking advantage of other people. It's so much of the message that comes through in the stories that we read, and the movies that we line up for and the video games we buy for our kids, these are the things that are there already. And so is this relevant? And I absolutely think so. And so let's start with the first one. How much of the media we consume glorifies or glamorizes sexual immorality? So what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, he actually uses the word um, he actually uses the word fornication. And by using the word fornication, he's talking about all things connected to sex that take place outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, one man and one woman who are married to each other. He says all sexual thoughts, activities, anything you view, all of that stuff outside of it, he's, it's, a, it's a big catch-all statement. So maybe you're in the room and you're hearing this and you're like, well, sexual morality is not a problem for me because I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never slept with somebody else who's not, who I'm not married to, but then he changed, like the whole thing is, no, 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 it's not that. It's so much more. 
it's, it's what we think about. It's, it's the channels we surf. It's those websites that we look at in incognito mode. It's all of those kinds of things that he's getting at here. Now, he, he didn't know about incognito mode necessarily at the time, but when we talk about it today, these are the kinds of things in the way that sexuality and sexual morality has uh, permeated our culture, right? And so if we even c consider pornography for a second, it's so... Um, pervasive in our culture, it's so normalized in our culture that even as you walked into the movie theater today, you may have noticed a giant picture for 50-somethings and a telephone that you can pick up and put to your ear. And I don't know what is on the other end of that phone, but the idea is that pornography, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, demonstration, the picture, the exploitation of sexuality ha has been made so common that any one of our kids, if we weren't paying attention, could have gone and picked that up and who knows what they would have been exposed to in that moment. It's just normal. And, and, and if you can tell, I, I, I don't like that it's that normal, but this is what we live in. And it's not just when we go online and we kind of go and we search for stuff. Pornography has become so normalized in our culture that it's everywhere. It's made its way into our pockets. So when we're flipping through Instagram, it's there. It sought us out, right? Or, or when we go onto Netflix or when we watch HBO, it's just there. Everybody's watching it. Everyone's talking about this next great series. But the reality is, is it's presenting sexuality, the sensual and sexual nature of things in a way that is glamorizing. And so often, it's actually um, moving away. It's, it's not so often. It almost always is moving away from the sanctity of sex which is the set apart, remember sanctity comes kind of from that root of, of, of sanctified, being set apart. Sex was designed and set apart with a purpose to be enjoyed for procreation and recreation in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman who are married to each other. That's what sex was designed for, that's where it is perfect, perfected, that is where it is holy, that is what it was designed to be used for and yet it seems like when I watch TV, that version of sex is boring. Or that, that version of sex is not normal. That's, what, that's the opposite of what you want. I got married maybe kind of young. I don't know. I was 22. And in my last year of college, uh, we were engaged. And I remember talking to my classmates saying, yeah, I'm getting married. That's a big deal, right? And they're like, wow, have, do you live with her? I didn't even know you lived with her. I'm like, no, I don't live with her. And eventually it came up, well, have you slept with her? I know, that's just how we were. That's how it was. People asked, have you slept with her? No. And I remember the thing, you're going to get married to someone that you haven't lived with or had sex with yet? I'm like, that's exactly what I'm going to do, actually. Yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to pay off our debt together. We're going to enjoy all these things. Or we're going to have no money, but at least together. We're going to do that, like, together. We get to do this. And I remember them thinking, you are so backwards and upside down. And yet, week after week, I had conversations with how broken their lives were because they slept with another girl or another guy and they were never complete. Why? Because that's not what sex is made for. That's not what it was designed for. That is an attack on the sanctity of it. And any time we're exposed to sexual immorality by watching it for entertainment or by, or by participating in it, we are, it is breaking away or breaking down our wholeness. It, it is attacking our souls. And so Paul says it's worth noting here. And then he moves on and he talks about, uh, about lusting passionately like the pagans or like those who do not know God. And so uh, lust simply defined is a strong desire to gain something for personal use or personal pleasure. So it's the desire to get something for no reason other than extracting joy and pleasure from it. That's the only reason. And so yeah, when Jesus or when Paul or when other people in scripture write about lust or maybe when we think of lust, initially we think of sexuality, but if it's the ultimate desire for something, then we can apply it to a whole number of different things. And so there's the lust for money. 
where it becomes the obsession of our thoughts and all we want is more of it and what are we doing with the stuff that we have and how are we moving it around and is my money working for me? And we think about it over and over and over again to the point where it becomes an ultimate desire. And then, I mean, scripture tells us in another place that the love of money is the root of all evil. Why? Because we get corrupted in our lust and we're willing to do whatever it takes to get more of whatever it is we're lusting for that we could care less about the collateral damage around us. It doesn't matter. It's not just money, it's power. The fight for power. I need to be number one. I need the promotion. I need to get the better grade. I need to be number one on the team. I need all of this stuff. And again, the lust, the desire for it is so strong, it becomes the ultimate thing in our life. And we could care less if we haven't even had dinner with our family for an entire week because at least we worked the extra hours and now the boss is noticing us. We don't even care about the collateral damage. Some of the great philosophical thinkers say that when we come to talking about lust, we get to a point where we have no, in it, we, have no uh, we, we release all inhibitions, we have nothing restricting us, we have lost total self-control to get the thing that we want. There's lusting for more stuff, right? And so this doesn't help because it's like everybody is a marketer these days and everything that comes up on my uh, news feed or whatever is telling me, you need to buy this. I'm like, I, I actually think I do need to buy this. And before I know it, I've bought stuff or I've kickstarted something and I don't even know if it's ever going to come in the mail, but I've sent some money towards it because I needed that thing. And until I have it, I just, I mean, it, it showed me a problem I didn't even realize I had, right? And we think it's going to solve our problems, but it doesn't. And then, it, you know, oh man. And then Paul talks about taking advantage of other people. He says, if you are a whole, living a holy life, you're avoiding sexual morality, you're not lusting for things like the pagans do, and you're not to take advantage of anyone else. If there's anything we know when we flip on the news these days is that our world is so broken because everyone is in it for personal gain trying to take advantage of other people. This is a whole Me Too campaign. Every day, more and more people are coming out with their stories. More and more people are being accused. I can't actually believe it. It's unbelievable. And yet, what is it all about? People lust for power, they lust for authority, they get to a point where it doesn't matter, I'm gonna take advantage of anybody because as long as I get personal gain, that's all that matters. And we think, we believe, it's not just them, friends, it's us in the room, we've all got something or more than one thing. We've all got something that says until we have this or until it goes this way, we won't be total, complete, whole people. And what's actually happening is it's breaking us down. It's pushing us back. It's restricting us from being able to experience the fullness of what God has actually set out for us as we live a life of holiness. And so, I might be going out on a limb here, but it seems to me that just about everything that comes out of Hollywood is about celebrating sexual immorality, lusting for all sorts of different things, and taking advantage of other people. Right, we even love, I love watching that show, Cutthroat Kitchen. It's about cooking, but is it actually? Or is it about watching how much one person can wreck another person's opportunity to win? I don't even know what that show's about anymore. Plus, if you actually watch it, it is so ridiculous, <laughs> the stuff they've come up with. But the point is, like, why do I love that? It's cutthroat. It's like one person's got to win. And like, I, you know, not that they're going to cut anybody's head off and stand on their chest, like, like Bible stories tell us. But there's something about it, like, like I want, like, ah, what is that? Because it's gotten me too. And I've got to fight back against it. All of us do. And so if this is a necessary warning for the early church, is it relevant for us today? Absolutely it is. 
Scripture tells us in another place in the book of Proverbs that we've got to above all else guard our hearts. Why? Because the thing that we submit our hearts to is what we become like. In other words, you become what you love. In other words, you become, we become what we desire most, which gives us that 2 Corinthians 3.18 verse again. Do you desire more than anything to be made into the image of the likeness of Jesus Christ or something else? And if it's anything else, it means that Jesus is still not the ulti- in the ultimate position. Jesus, the only whole person who by the grace of God we are being made like. Why? Because it's God's will that as followers of his son, we will be sanctified and holy, made like him. So what do we do? How do we actually make wise decisions? I'm going to give you three, uh, three practical uh, ideas that you can take and use or you can hopefully maybe create your own, whatever, share what your other things are. And then uh, I actually totally forgot to mention this, but we were going to have, did I say we're going to have question and response? We're going to have question and response um, towards the end. My mistake. I meant to say that at the beginning. I got all excited about heavy metal and stuff, I guess. And um, so there'll be a number that'll come up on the screen in a few minutes and you'll be able to text your questions into that. And then, uh, and then uh, Tony and I will kind of work through some of those questions and responses. I don't know if I'll have a great answer for everything, but I can for sure give you a response at the very least. Okay. So a couple of practical things and then we'll move into that time. So number one, practical instruction, start with Jesus. So if you're in the room today and you, you are not following Jesus, you're just checking things out. Maybe you're saying, I feel the lack of completeness. You're saying, I feel like I'm not a whole person. You're saying, I've, I, I've strived and I've worked hard and I've scrambled around trying to get all of this stuff so I would feel like a total person. And maybe some of you have even actually gotten more stuff, gotten more money, gotten more accolades, and the more stuff you get, the less total or the less complete you've actually felt. You're gonna feel that way until you give your life to Jesus, recognizing that he gave his for you first. You're always going to have that. You're never going to stop running around. You're never going to stop being out of breath. You're never going to stop wanting more or worrying until you've got Jesus. And then you get this perspective which says, oh, I am a total person. Now let me allow him to work in me to put me back together to be the person I was meant to be. So maybe today you need to just say straight up, man, I I haven't yet, but Jesus, I, I trust you. Jesus, I want to be in a relationship with you. And if that's kind of not, you're kind of getting used to all this or it's kind of new, talk to the person who invited you or the person beside you. Come talk to anybody who's been up here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about that. However, you also might be here, and I know that for sure there are Christians in the room and there's still that question, is Jesus the ultimate desire, the thing, the person that you want to become or is it something else? And so it's not just those who don't know Jesus that have to ask this question. It's actually those of us that are following him that need to uh, really ask ourselves the question, am I serious about this or not? Is it Jesus plus all these other things? Or is it all these other things then plus a bit of Jesus? Or is it him exclusively and then trusting him to kind of fill in the blanks as we go? That's the first thing. The second uh, thing, um, cut it off. How about that? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, um, I've heard this verse preached a lot of times and I do not think Jesus is telling us to go maim ourselves. 
But what I do believe he's doing is he's giving us an eternal uh, framework, an eternal perspective on how to live our life. And so what he's saying is there are certain things that you are going to do in your life right now that are going to seem to give you joy or pleasure, but it's so short term in light of eternity. And are you willing to risk the joy that God has set up for you in all of eternity by experiencing a short term joy right now? Is that really what this comes down to? Something small losing out on something tremendous? Instead, he says, instead of that, he says, take the loss now. He says, so cut off your hand. Is that a big loss? Yeah, we would say that's pretty major. But in light of having our entire body, spending eternity separate from God, is losing our hand that big a deal in light of eternity? You have to decide for yourself. Then he says, gouge out your eye, right? And so what is he saying? I believe he's saying an eternal perspective about small loss, making the sacrifices now. In some cases, it's a big loss right now, but it's for an even bigger eternal gain later. I think what he's saying here is, another thing he's saying here is you've got to set up boundaries. You have to guard yourself. You have to put up barriers between you and the things that you're allowing to come in and the things that you're doing. I representing what you're taking in and your hand representing what you're doing. You need to Think through this all right now. So for me, very personally, this has looked like uh, having a subscription to Covenant Eyes. So Covenant Eyes is a program that I run on my phone and my computer. Those are the only two devices I have. And essentially what it does is it, it keeps an account of everything that I look at on the internet. Every social media site I go to, every website I visit, all of that stuff. And once a week, it generates a report and sends that report to my wife, to my best friend, and to another pastor. Why did I do this? I started doing this with a group of friends because in the first year of my marriage, I had pretty much a porn addiction. And it got to a point where I knew that if I, I can't even enjoy the realities of what sex is meant to be because I'm exposing myself to something that is so broken and giving me such an upside down and wrong example of what this is. So why am I frustrated in my marriage? Why isn't sex like this? Because I was watching something that was completely and totally made up. And so all of us went on this thing together and by the grace of God, for, with good friends who love me, with a God who is so much more more committed to me than I am to him. I've been free from porn for like what, seven, seven years. I'm going to be married eight years. This is seven years. And why am I saying that to you? Because I cut off certain things. I gave up my internet anonymity. I gave up the privacy that we all want to have. We don't want anybody to know the weird stuff we've Googled. But I gave that up. Why? Because it's a small loss now in light of the eternal gain I'm going to have later. So I don't know what it is for you. That is probably, though, the best $14 a month you could ever spend. You can get family plans. I would suggest having everybody and your whole family on it. It's so worth it. Make sure you check this out later on today. Covenant Eyes. For you, it might look like you need to get rid of your Netflix subscription. Or maybe it's just one show you need to cut out. Or you need to stop buying video games. Or you need to, I don't know what it means for you but there's probably something you need to cut out because it's holding you back from experiencing the fullness of life and joy that God has for us. It's not enabling you to be the whole person that God has made you to be. Number three, ask yourself these filtering questions. And after this, we'll go into our Q&A. So text in your questions. Question number one, does this honor God in its content or celebrate the ways of Jesus? This book, this movie, this show, this video game, this whatever, does this honor God in its content or celebrate the ways of Jesus? Sometimes we watch movies that have great narratives of, of sacrificial love or redemption or, 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 or forgiveness or whatever else, but sometimes we just go to that and we say, oh, it's not so bad because it's got, you know, well, somebody, there's actually, there isn't a real married couple in that, in that show. 
And so we use that to justify, but like, would you drink a glass of water that had just a pin prick worth of poison in the tip of it? That's how the enemy works to attack our wholeness, one little bit at a time. I remember, you want to hear a ridiculous excuse that I used as a teenager? There's a song by the band Metallica called Master of Puppets. It's all about being addicted to drugs. And in this book, in this song, one of the lines is chop your breakfast on a mirror, which is a blatant, um, uh, a blatant reference to, to, to cocaine. And I remember my mom reading through the lyrics and saying, oh, mom, you have nothing to worry about. It's just about being mindful of the food that you consume. It's really a song with a message about healthy eating. <laughs> now, that's, I was not just a dumb teenager, though I was. We all, in one way or another, try to justify the nonsense, the total corruption that we're consuming because it has that hold on us. And so does it glorify God? The second thing, does it stimulate lust for sex, more stuff, or power over people? Does it feed our desires? Does it present us something that is trying to become the ultimate thing in our life at the expense of losing Jesus? I love this one that, that we came up with. Is there anything else I could be doing that would be better for the wholeness of my soul? When I say we, that's not a royal we. That's Tony and Vijay and I sorting this out. <laughs> is there anything at all? Could I take out the trash? Would that be better? Could I, is there literally anything? And the answer to that is definitely 100% all the time. Yes, there is something better. That's not a trick question. That's, we're trying to get you to think. We've got to think through our decisions. And lastly, is there, something you're, is there something you're consuming right now that you need to cut out? Is it, is it the internet? Is it the video game? Is it, what is it? And is there something that you just need to straight up cut out forever, for a short time, that you need to invite somebody into the process saying, I've got a real problem here. Will you help me break out of this thing? That's what... Those are the four questions that we think you should, you know, take a picture of or whatever. In home groups, maybe we'll reiterate them somehow because you can use these as a filter to make decisions about what you consume. So we're going to go to Q&A. I think a number will come up on the screen and, uh, and a Q and question and response. And uh, so text those in. It's going to go straight to Tony's phone. And, um, or is that a secret? Or, okay. <laughs> so keep it clean, okay? That's what we're saying here. <laughs> Be nice. Um. Okay, one question's come in and it said, um, how do I talk to a friend mm -hmm. who um, maybe is like watching like Game of Thrones or another show or whatever? And maybe they don't see it as an issue, but I know it's something that might be, you know, a threat to their wholeness. How do I actually have a, a meaningful, loving conversation with that person? Yeah, I think in, in all types of trying to have these more difficult conversation, it actually, the first move we should make is having a deep time of personal uh, self-diagnostic or analysis where we look at our own lives and we say, okay, if, I'm, if, I'm if I see something that's very clearly a problem in somebody else's life, where have I actually done this work in my own life before and what did that experience look like? So can I just talk to you about what it looks like to break out of a porn addiction? Well, I, I, I will help you in that conversation, but one of the reasons I can feel I've got something is because I've worked through that stuff in my own life. So as you do that, there's two things that happens. One thing is that whenever you ask God, shine light on the brokenness in my life, he does that. And then he, he gives life and grace and all that stuff, but he also tends to give you the right demeanor, the posture that you need to actually engage in this conversation with somebody else. Now, if you find yourself, I, I, and this is like, I, I did this for a long time and still have to hold myself back. I'm very quick to want to correct everybody else for everything else that they're doing, right? You have to ask yourself, well, is it actually an issue with God 
that's going on here? Or is it just something that I don't like about what they're doing? And so when we take that time of getting before God ourselves, he does the work in us and actually helps us navigate, navigate that. You might notice that with the exception to a reference to Metallica, I chose not to mention any show or any band or anything else, explicitly name it by title. Why? Because this is the exact kind of thing that you need to go, we all need to go, I keep saying you, but I mean we, we need to go and we need to sort through what are the things. So how do you have that conversation? By saying, I've noticed that there are themes or I've heard about what Game of Thrones is all like, and you know what? I was actually watching this other show or playing this other video game, or be straight up and say, you know what? I actually watched a bit of Game of Thrones to learn firsthand that I know that the message in it's not good. Can, I, can we just talk about that? So I would say, take that route. Yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> what do you say to someone who says, well, okay, the media I consume for the most part, maybe it's not like the Bible on Netflix or, you know, like I don't have like the whole collection of all of the, the, the gospel of Jesus uh, movies that have ever been made. So maybe I'm not like there, but it's not like, you know, the things that I watch are, you know, maybe sports or maybe like HGTV or Discovery Channel. Like most of the stuff I, I watch is kind of PG-13 or whatever. So like, what's the big deal? What do you say to someone? First thing I say is I don't watch sports at all, so I'm severely underqualified. You can talk to Greg. <laughs> no, he and I know a lot of things about sports. But what I, one thing I would say is, okay, nothing necessarily wrong with those. Those are PG-13, but maybe you're watching home and garden television, and that's actually stirring up a desire in yourself to have a new house or a newer kitchen or a new something, and it's actually leading to an unhealthy thought or desire in your life. It's actually seeming like, oh, this thing, that's PG. Nobody cusses on whatever. Nobody does that, but... Um, is it actually stirring up something else? That's what Paul is getting at. There's something so much more to just the language that is used or, or the things that we're watching and seeing, but what is happening underneath that? Is it conjuring that up within you? The other thing I think is that media in so many ways functions as a form of escapism. So that comes back to that, is there anything better I could be doing type of question. Sometimes I've even said this straight to my family, listen, I need 10 minutes on the couch playing whatever because I just like mashed potato brains for a minute. I've been go, 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 go. I just need to stop thinking. Now, how does that look to my kids? And I'm like, kids, you just hang tight for 10 minutes. I'm just going to get on my phone and I'm going to pretend to be a snowboarder for 10 minutes, right? It's an escapism. So when we ask the question, is there literally anything else we could be doing that is better? Yeah, we're not escaping the reality that's right in front of us where there's actually good stuff for us to be doing in that moment. Um, and it, I mean, so again, specific things, there's always, there's always something underneath it. And that's why we want to be wise in discerning in the decisions that we make. So again, I mean, we're going to move into the conclusion here. The worship team can come on up. But um, if you have more questions, please bring them up. Talk to us about these things. We'd love to work through them in your home groups. Maybe you need to start chatting with the person beside you. But here's what I want us to think about as we close and move back into uh, a song and worship. Imagine what it would be like if we lived out our wholeness, our completeness, if we lived out this status, this identity, this position that we have, if we lived it out in such a way that it became so beautiful and attractive to the people around us. So one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he knew exactly who he was. He knew that he was a child of God, the only son of God, that he was beloved, that he was chosen for this, for this intentional purpose uh, on earth, and that he was perfect and sanctified, set apart, holy. But that never stopped him 
from finding his way into conversations with people who others would look at and say, you shouldn't be hanging around those people. If you're holy, you shouldn't be with them. Jesus understood that his holiness actually functioned like a light for others to have the opportunity to experience that wholeness as well. And so what we get to do as followers of Jesus with the spirit of God living within us, empowering us supernaturally to live every single day, we get to live the life of a total, complete person. And there will be others who look at us and say, wow, how can you be so generous with your money? Why aren't you saving that up or investing that in something like your kitchen or something like that? They say, why aren't you spazzing out? Why aren't you freaking out when this thing happened at work? Like, what, like we're, there's all these job cuts that are happening. You might lose your job. Why aren't you freaking out? Well, that's an opportunity for us to present who we are as a whole person and say, well, I know that my identity, I'm taking care of, like God loves me. I have an eternal perspective and there's something attractive about that. Imagine the impact we could have as we go back to wherever we came from, to our homes, to our schools, to our jobs, to our parquets, wherever it happens to be. Imagine what we could, the, the impact we could have if we were just saying, God, I want to be a whole complete person. Make me that and let me be that light to other people. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, thank you for um, your word and for your love and for calling us holy and set apart. As broken as we are, as much a work in progress as we are, God, you still look at us and see us in a complete way and you are so committed to making us. It is your will that we would be made into the image of the likeness of Jesus, that we would be like Jesus. So God, help us even now to live like Jesus, to imitate him, to submit to him, to go to him first in all circumstances. As hard as that is, that we would go to him and that we would see how did he handle his things in life? How did, how did he go about it? And I want to be like that. And God, because it's your will, you help us to be like that. You are making us whole. You are making us complete. You are making us finished products. And it's by your grace that this happens. And so we thank you for that. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.